What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the program. In this episode, we're going to continue taking a look at the order by Judge Judge denying Shannon Gray's request to be exempt from the gag order. Part 3. Issues Presented The Gonsalves family's motion raises two distinct issues. First, does the amended non-dissemination order prohibit the Gonsalves family from speaking to the media or the public about the case? The amended non-dissemination order does not apply to the Gonsalves family. Also, the court's revised amended non-dissemination order will not restrict the Gonsalves family's speech. However, while the speech of the victim's families is not and will not be restrained by court order, this case is indisputably high profile and the law requires the case to be tried in a court of law and not in the press or the public. As the U.S. Supreme Court has stated, it is not asking too much to suggest that those who exercise First Amendment rights in newspapers or broadcasting enterprises direct some effort to protect the rights of an accused to a fair trial by unbiased jurors. Nebraska Press Association v. Stewart, 427, U.S. 539-560-96, Supreme Court, 2791-2803, 49LED, 2D683-1976. The same is true for those participating in a case and privy to confidential information. The second issue raised is the Gonsalves family's motion is to whether the court has the authority to restrict the speech of Gray, an attorney involved in, but not a party to, the case. Further, this motion argues that the amended non-dissemination order violates Gray's First Amendment right to free speech. In fact, the amended non-dissemination order does prohibit Gray, an attorney representing a victim's family members, who are also potential witnesses, from speaking to the public and the media about the case. Gray argues that as an attorney for one of the victim's families, he is allowed to relay to the media any of the opinions, views, or statements of those family members regarding any part of the case. Memorandum in support of motion for appeal and or clarification of the amended non-dissemination order at 4. Gray also argues that he himself is allowed to comment on the case and other issues surrounding the investigation pursuant to IRPC Rule 3.6. In Gray's view, the court does not have the authority to restrict his First Amendment rights at all because he and his clients are not parties to the case. This decision addresses 1. Obligation of the court to ensure that Koberger's right to a fair trial is not jeopardized by prejudicial extrajudicial statements. 2. The court's authority to impose restrictions on the speech of attorneys and their agents involved in this case. And the standard applied to reviewing a constitutional challenge by a lawyer whose speech has been restrained by a non-dissemination order. Finally, this decision will apply the law and rules applicable to attorneys to the facts of this case in addressing Gray's argument that the amended non-dissemination order violates his First Amendment right to free speech. Part 4. The Law To begin, this court must first address the status of the Gonsalves family in this case. This court agrees with Gray that the Gonsalves family members are not parties to this case. However, as victims and potential witnesses, their status separates them from regular citizens. A crime victim is an individual who suffers direct emotional harm as the result of the commission of a crime. I.C. Section 19-5306 Crime victims, and specifically immediate families of homicide victims, 
are afforded both statutory and constitutional rights. I.C. Section 19, 5306, Article 1, and Section 22 of the Idaho Constitution. The Gonsalves family, as well as the families of the other three victims, are undoubtedly victims in this case. As such, they are afforded rights that the public is not, including the rights to communicate with the prosecution, to prior notification of trial court proceedings, to read presentence reports relating to the crime, as well as other rights. These rights put the victim's families and Gray, as the attorney representing the Gonsalves family, in a position to know details about the crime and the prosecution's case that the public has no right to know at this stage in the proceedings. Additionally, while the Gonsalves family members are victims, they are also potential witnesses in the case for both trial and sentencing. Again, this puts them in a unique position and sets them apart from the public. In 1966, the U.S. Supreme Court recognized the defendant's right to a trial by an impartial jury free from outside influences. In the face of a massive, pervasive, and prejudicial publicity, Shepard v. Maxwell, 384 U.S., 333, 335, 362, 86, Supreme Court, 1507, 1508, 1522, 16L.ED.2D600-1966. The court chastised the trial judge for not taking strong measures to ensure Shepard's right to a fair trial. At 362, 86 Supreme Court at 1522. The trial court did not enter a non-dissemination order restricting the speech of trial participants or any gag order on the media. In overturning Shepard's conviction, the court listed several things that the trial court should have done. One, the judge should have adopted stricter rules governing the use of the courtroom by newsmen and should have been more closely regulated the conduct of newsmen in the courtroom. Two, the court should have insulated the witnesses, all of the newspapers and radio stations apparently interviewed prospective witnesses at will, and in many instances disclosed their testimony. 3. The court should have made some effort to control the release of leads, information, and gossip to the press by police officers, witnesses, and the counsel for both sides. Much of the information thus disclosed was inaccurate, leading to groundless rumors and confusion. 4. The judge should have at least warned the newspapers to check the accuracy of their accounts. And five, it is obvious that the judge should have further sought to alleviate inaccurate prejudicial news by imposing control over the statements made to the news media by counsel, witnesses, and especially the coroner and police officers. Idaho at 358, 360, 86 Supreme Court at 1520 and 21. Emphasis added. In summary, the court stated that the trial court might well have prescribed extrajudicial statements by any lawyer, party, witness, or court official which divulge prejudicial matters such as the refusal of Shepard to submit to interrogation or take any lie detector tests, the identity of prospective witnesses or their probable testimony, any belief in guilt or innocence, or like statements concerning the merits of the case. ID at 361 86, Supreme Court, at 1521. In addressing the tension between the First Amendment and the Sixth Amendment, the court stated, From the cases coming here, we note the unfair and prejudicial news comment on pending trials has become increasingly prevalent. Due process requires that the accused receive a trial by impartial jury free from outside influences. 
Given the pervasiveness of modern communications and the difficulty of effacing prejudicial publicity from the minds of jurors, the trial courts must take strong measures to ensure that the balance is never weighed against the accused. And appellate tribunals have the duty to make an independent evaluation of the circumstances. Of course, there is nothing that proscribes the press from reporting events that transpire in the courtroom. But where there is a reasonable likelihood that prejudicial news prior to trial will prevent a fair trial, the judge should continue the case until the threat abates or transfer it to another county not so permeated with publicity. In addition, sequestering the jury was something the judge should have raised sua sponte with counsel. If publicity during the proceedings threatens the fairness of the trial, a new trial should be ordered. But we must remember that reversals are but palliatives. The cure lies in those remedial measures that will prevent the prejudice at its inception. The court must take such steps by rule and regulation that will protect their process from prejudicial outside interferences. Neither prosecutors, counsel for defense, the accused, witnesses, court, staff, nor enforcement officers coming under the jurisdiction of the court should be permitted to frustrate its function. Collaboration between counsel and the press as to information affecting the fairness of a criminal trial is not only subject to regulation, but is highly censurable and worthy of disciplinary measures. Idaho Court at 362, 63, 86 Supreme Court, 1507 at 1522. In 1976, the U.S. Supreme Court again addressed the tensions between the First Amendment and the Sixth Amendment in Nebraska Press. Even then, in 1976, the court acknowledged the speed of communication and the pervasiveness of the modern news media have exasperated the tension between the First Amendment and the Sixth Amendment. Nebraska Press Association 427, U.S. at 548, 96, Supreme Court at 2798. Unlike in this case, Nebraska Press dealt with a restraint on the media's ability to publish or broadcast specific information, i.e. a restraint on freedom of the press and not a restraint on freedom of speech. The court recognized that when the case is a sensational one, tensions develop between the right of the accused to trial by impartial jury and the rights guaranteed others by the First Amendment. ID at 551.96, Supreme Court at 2799. The court noted that a prior restraint on speech is most serious and the least tolerable infringement on the First Amendment rights, while also acknowledging that when the death penalty is on the table, it is not requiring too much that the defendant be tried in an atmosphere undisturbed by so huge a wave of public passion. ID at 552-96, Supreme Court at 2799, quoting Irvin v. Dowd, 366, U.S., 717-728-81, Supreme Court, 1639-1645-6L.ED.2D-751-1961. The court stated that it is not asking too much to suggest that those who exercise First Amendment rights in newspapers or broadcasting enterprises direct some efforts to protect the rights of an accused to a fair trial by unbiased jurors. ID at 560-96, Supreme Court at 2803. The same is true for trial participants, including lawyers who are privy to confidential information. In a footnote in the concurring opinion, authored by Justice Brennan, the following was noted. 
A significant component of prejudicial pretrial publicity may be traced to public commentary on pending cases by court personnel, law enforcement officials, and the attorneys involved in the case. In Shepard v. Maxwell, Supra, we observe that the trial court might well have prescribed extrajudicial statements by any lawyer, party, witness, or court official which divulge prejudicial matters. 384 U.S. at 361, 86 Supreme Court at 1521. See also ID at 360, 86 Supreme Court at 1521. The judge should have further sought to alleviate this problem of publicity that misrepresented the trial testimony by imposing control over the statements made to the news media by counsel, witnesses, and especially the coroner and police officers. ID at 359, 363, 86 Supreme Court at 1521-1522. As officers of the court, court personnel, and attorneys have a fiduciary responsibility not to engage in public debate that will rebound to the detriment of the accused or that will obstruct the fair administration of justice. It is very doubtful that the court would not have the power to control release of information by these individuals in appropriate cases. See Sawyer, 360 U.S., 622-79, Supreme Court, 1376, 3L.ED.2D, 1473-1959, and to impose suitable limitations whose transgressions could result in disciplinary proceedings, CF, New York Times Company, versus United States, 403 U.S., at 728-730-91, Supreme Court, at 2148-2149, Stuart J. joined by White J. concurring. Similarly, in most cases, courts would have ample power to control such actions by law enforcement personnel. All right, folks, that's going to wrap it up for part two. And part three is on the way. All of the information that goes with this episode can be found in the description box. Hello. 